0: Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> you have to forgive me, I'm a little bit croaky this morning. It's only a, a sore throat. I did have a test last night just to make sure it was nothing more than that, but it's just a sore throat. <laughs> okay, well, look, good morning and welcome. Welcome especially if you are a visitor here this morning. Uh, I can add my welcome to you. We are, we are on a journey through the book of Revelation. Now, at, at chapter 11, we're actually halfway through... And now, if you're a visitor, if if you're here for the first time or or you're just on your starting to to visit us, it's always tricky when you start to read a story in the middle. We don't normally do that. Uh, And Revelation is quite a challenging book in many ways. So, uh, if you're new to us this morning, if you're part of coming to us uh, afresh, Jesus wins. Okay? If you take that away. You've got Revelation. Now, we're going to dig into it in a little bit more detail than that. But if you're confused, if you're a little bit concerned about, hey, where do we go? What's this book of Revelation all about? It's a wonderful book because ultimately, Jesus wins. That's what it's all about. So if you get anything, take that. Now, uh, we are in, as I said, in chapter 11 this morning. And I want to use this passage to answer what I think is one of the key questions concerning this whole book. It's a question that applies to all 22 chapters, not just this particular one, but this chapter really brings it into stark relief. Now we can of course ask the the when, sorry, we can ask the when question. When does all of this take place when does all of what we read take place is it past is it present is it future is it all three and we've looked at that question in previous weeks we could ask the what question what is this book all about what do the symbols and the pictures represent and a lot of that's going to come in uh, weeks to come they're both big questions But this morning, I want to ask the why question. This is such an important question, because if we accept that there is a lot of symbolism and a lot of imagery in this book, then the really obvious question is why? Revelation covers significant, vital subjects. The end of the world, Christ's return, the final judgment of all. So if this book and its message are so important... Why all the symbols? To put it bluntly, if God wanted to tell us something that important, why not just come out and tell us plainly what was going to happen? It would make it uh, a whole lot easier for all of us, I'm sure you would agree. So I hope you agree that asking the question, why all these symbols, why all this imagery in Revelation, or did the Bible as a whole, is a good question to ask. If you don't think so, then just go with me for the next half an hour or so, because that's the question I'm going to be looking at. So let's start by reading the first 11 verses of chapter 11. Revelation 11, starting at verse 1. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Father, I thank you for your word I thank you that you do speak to us, how precious that is. Uh, I pray now that you'd give us wisdom to hear and to understand and apply your word. Amen. Pretty dramatic stuff, hey? Wow, everybody's thinking, what is that all about? Um, And this chapter is really helpful because it helps us to focus on or what are probably the two main ways that we can view this book. Is it a literal account of events that are to happen? Will events unfold literally as we read them here? Or is it a more symbolic account in which the passage talks of principles and ideas rather than actual specific events? Now, we could put those two views at the end of a spectrum and and actually have all sorts of views uh, in between. I've said before, there are as many explanations for Revelation as there are Bible commentators. Everybody's got a different take on this. But if we use chapter 11 as an example, we have on the one hand these two witnesses that are spoken of in this chapter as two real people. That's, that's one particular view that we can have. And events unfold exactly as we read in the passage. Or at the other end of the spectrum, the passage can be interpreted and understood symbolically with the picture of the olive trees and the lampstands being representative of the church itself rather than two people. representative of the church itself throughout all history. So at one end, we have a view that reads exactly as it is written in Scripture. And in one sense, it's an incredibly clear passage. If we want to, read it literally. Here are two people who proclaim God's word fearlessly for a period of three and a half years, of a seven-year end time period, with signs and miracles and divine protection, until they are finally killed, only to be miraculously resurrected At which point we move into the final stages of history with the seventh trumpet and the return of Christ and final judgment. Now that's a view held by many Bible scholars. There's a lot more we could ask with that view such as who are these two witnesses if they're two real people. And again there are many answers to that. But in one sense, the passage needs no further explanation, at least no further search for hidden meanings. There is no symbolism to explain because there are no symbols. It's a literal account of events. And it's easy to see that view in this chapter because it's so clear, it's so precise. You know, times are stated three and a half years, seven years, the language is pretty clear. We can easily picture this just as it's described. Now, others would favor a more symbolic read of this passage, and indeed all of Revelation. And that's the general direction that I'm coming from. Now, no matter what we make of these two witnesses, literal or symbolic, the couple of verses before the chapter do seem to be symbolic. John himself reminds us in the passage, in verse 8, of the symbolic nature of this story. He says, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Where their Lord was crucified. Now, I don't want to touch on that verse too much uh, today. We'll come back to the great city and what all that means in a later sermon, I think, won't we, Danny, when we work out who's going to do that one? We'll get to the great city, don't worry. It might be next year sometime, but it's a coming. Uh, We'll get to that verse at some kind of later point. Um, But if we look at the first two verses, John is told to measure the temple. Now, no one reads that literally. We don't read that and imagine John needs to pop down to his local B&Q and grab a, grab a five-meter extendable tape measure and pop out and measure the temple. We're not looking for an answer that always oh, is 35 meters by 70 meters. No, no, that's a symbolic statement. We measure that which belongs to us. If you bought a field you would go and measure its size. This is one of the excuses, by the way, of, that people gave in, in, in Luke's gospel, in the parable of the wedding feast, when, uh, when they didn't want to come to Jesus. It says in Luke 14 and 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have b- built a field and must go out and see it, or more precisely, measure it. You measure that which belongs to you. Uh, for those of us that have moved property one of the first things you do is measure the size of the windows. Because you need to buy curtains. You don't measure your neighbor's windows. You measure that which belongs to you. And so when John is being told to measure the temple, it's this symbolic reference to measure the fact that God has a dwelling place that is owned by him, that is set aside for his people remember one of the big questions that John was wrestling with John personally was is the church actually going to survive another generation John's in prison John's seeing persecution John's hearing all terrible things his thought is will the church last and so one of the messages to John is yes the church will triumph God will triumph there is a future there is a destiny for the church measure it It exists, it's there, it's owned, it can be seen. So right here at the beginning of the chapter, we have this picture that there is a dwelling place that is known and is protected by God for his people. John is told the church will not just fade away and die at the end of time, but God's people are protected, their eternal dwelling place is assured. And so if this chapter starts with a clear, symbolic couple of verses, I would suggest that this reinforces the idea that the rest of the chapter may be understood symbolically. So the main question remains, why all the symbols? Well, let me give you four reasons. Uh, And as we do that, we'll look at what these symbols could mean. Four reasons for all the imagery and symbols in the Bible. Firstly, symbols endure. Symbols endure. Put simply, language styles and the written word change over time. And it becomes harder and harder to read and understand ancient literature if we just have the words. Symbols, in contrast, are far more enduring Remember, John is writing to first-century Christians. But God is ultimately the author of this book, and he knows that this book must be read and understood by Christians for 20 centuries to come. Now, just imagine for a moment how words have changed over time. Take, Take Shakespeare, for example. His writings are a mere 500 years old, not even close to 2,000. And we actually go to great trouble to preserve the original words. Uh, Shakespeare's plays are often staged in a more contemporary way with more modern language, but I I don't call that Shakespeare. I I go with the original. Uh, I appreciate that. Now, on the left here is a a modern uh, translation of the opening of Macbeth, one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. On the right, the original manuscript of the play. It's a great opening scene with the three witches. When shall we meet again? in thunder, lightning or rain, when the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Now, regardless of whether we speak like that today, the words are different. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, what we read as an S was an F back then. So lost becomes loft. Uh, were the three witches having some discussion in an attic somewhere Well, well no it's just that the words have changed their meanings a little bit harder to understand we still get what's being said there but give it another 1500 years how much will people understand of Shakespeare's writing Words are incredibly important. I know that full well. I have to to stand up here and use a lot of them. Words are really important. But, But so often we have to explain what words mean because what they mean changes over time. Take a phrase that we often have in Psalms. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. That's Psalm 39. My hope is in you. What do we mean by that? I hope it will be sunny tomorrow. I hope Chelsea or Man United or stick in your local team uh, win their next match. It doesn't carry much feeling of certainty, does it? Chances are it will rain tomorrow. Chances are my team will lose, not win their next match. I hope that Christ is coming back. Uh, But say it like that, well, you might not be. It's just a hope. Now, the meaning of words has changed. And back then, hope meant something far more stronger, far more secure. And so we need verses such as the one we find in Hebrews to help us. Uh, Hebrews 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Well, hope becomes a little bit more secure and certain now. And we have this picture of an anchor that holds a great ship in place to help us understand what's being conveyed. Just in case we're still missing the meaning, so words, literal words, change very quickly. The uh, I'm sure is it the Webster's, the biggest dictionary in the world, or something? Every year they have to publish a list of new words that have suddenly made it into our language. You know, our language changes very quickly. We need symbols to lock in meaning and ensure that it holds its place over time. Secondly, symbols arouse emotion. Revelation is an emotive book. It's meant to stir our feelings. It's meant to stir our emotions. The subject under discussion here is nothing less than the end of the world. The eternal destiny of mankind. Yes, of course, we can describe that with words. But can we really do justice to such a subject with just words? Thinking of the original question I posed, why doesn't God just simply tell us what is going to happen? Well, he could, for instance, have said something like this. uh, A great World dictator will come upon the world scene and he will oppress the church. And he could go on to outline something of that dictator's attributes or origins and there will be little ambiguity there. We will get it. We would understand it. And no one would have to stand up and explain all the symbolism. Or he could say, I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, that takes a little bit more work to understand. That takes a little bit more unpicking. But boy, does that stir our emotions. Does that engage our attention? Uh, And certainly, if we imagine the whole passage of time, where most people would not be literate, but needed pictures and images to convey meaning, then we can see the importance of this method of stirring and engaging people. And so if we go back to chapter 11, then a more symbolic interpretation of this passage would see this as not talking about two individuals, but about the church's mission throughout the ages. Now, can mere words explain that if you had to write an essay on 200 words on the church's mission back in school for a moment how well would you fare with that Uh, that mission to boldly proclaim the gospel however well put can words do justice to that or we have a passage such as and if anyone would harm them the church Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, we can read that literally. We've already said that. Or we can see that as a symbolic picture of the power of God That he's put within all of us. We probably don't think of ourselves as having fire coming from our mouths and consuming people. That's a little bit odd. But, when we look in Jeremiah, we find verses such as this. Behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. And this people, i.e. the people that are going to hear your words, would... And it will consume them. Again, there's imagery here that is reinforced throughout Scripture. Is not my word fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock. So we don't often think of ourselves as those who have the power to shut the sky and to bring down plagues as it's written there. But symbolically, we have a power within us that is incredible and transcends human understanding. Or if we want to stay in Revelation, albeit with some chapters we won't get to for a while, how do we describe literally the relationship between Christ and his church? Again, there's another essay subject for you. 200 words on the relationship between Christ and his church. How are you going to fare with that as a subject? What words will you use to describe that? We we could exhaust ourselves trying to explain that. Or we could just turn to one verse in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus is the Lamb. We are his bride. That's the relationship that's being talked of. And those pictures, those symbols, carry emotion. Uh, I think back to the the emotion of uh, my wedding. The feelings that I felt. uh, So much more than what mere words could convey. And so symbols arouse emotion. They remind us of truths in a far more weighty way than just words could say. If we were for uh, a moment to remember again the significance of this particular Sunday in the yearly calendar events, this day that has great importance for those who've served and given their lives in conflicts and wars around the world, no matter what we say, can we, mere words, do that justice we often think of the, the powerful poems you know, written by uh, some of the guys that, that, that served and died in the first world war poets such as you know Wilfred Owen and uh, Siegfried Sassoon but how much more powerfully are our emotions stirred by a simple symbol a poppy that says so much as that old saying goes a picture paints a thousand words a picture paints a thousand That almost sounds like Shakespeare, doesn't it? I had to check out that it wasn't Shakespeare. It would have been neat if Shakespeare had said that, because it would tie in with point one, but it wasn't Shakespeare, so never mind. But a picture paints a thousand words. Symbols arouse our emotion. Thirdly, and remember all of this is, again, just why is there so much crazy symbolism in Revelation? I trust I'm giving you some good reasons. Third one, symbols orientate, symbols help us find the way. So many of our visual cues today come in the form of symbols. They're instantly recognizable. Uh, A no entry sign needs no further explanation. That will save your car crashing into somebody coming in the other direction. Uh, The other symbol, Uh, Regardless of whether you speak the language of another nation or not, that's a universally helpful symbol to to literally help you go in the right direction. You need that symbol. Now, it's been estimated that there are actually over 400 symbols in Revelation. Uh, Again, in all honesty, I didn't count them. I read this, I'm taking it on good faith from someone that I trust, that there are 400-ish symbols in Revelation. Yet, 300, nearly 300 of them, three quarters of them, find their earlier references in the Old Testament. They're spoken of earlier. I'm returning to chapter 11 again to illustrate this. These two witnesses are described as olive trees and lampstands. And that may appear strange to us. We don't quite get that on our first read. But but these are symbols which would have immediately orientated those first century readers to what this passage meant. And we need to hold on to what this passage meant to first century readers if we're going to understand it in the 21st century. Remember, a helpful principle in... In applying scripture, in understanding scripture, when we come across a strange symbol, it's to say, where have we seen this before? Where have we seen this before? And this passage about lampstands and olive trees, we actually find very strongly in Zechariah 4. Now that's a bit of a lurch back to the Old Testament, but it's there and Zechariah is given this vision of a lampstand replenished by oil from two olive trees. Again, it's a picture that would have been rich in symbolism for people that were reading this book centuries ago. Now, whole books have been written on that passage and what the lampstands and the olive trees mean, so we can in no way do that justice here. But, But these symbols would orientate people to a deeper truth. In the Old Testament, the priests had to keep the oil lamps burning it was a time consuming it was an onerous task to keep replenishing them with oil so that the lamps in the temple would burn and the vision to Zechariah in chapter 4 is that a time is coming when the light itself would be self-maintaining that the oil from the trees would just keep filling the lamps the priests wouldn't have to do this there will be this continual source of power and so when we read of Olive trees and lampstands in Revelation, and that's a word coming to John and to the early church. There's a symbolism there that reminds the readers of the never ending supply of God's power that is available for those who believe in Him. Now, if we look at this, if we stick with Zechariah 4 for a little bit, the chapter that precedes that which is Zechariah chapter 3, just in case anybody's kind of wanting to make notes, uh, talks of a new order, or the correct order in God's kingdom. And two people are specifically called out there. Zerubbabel is mentioned as the leader who will help rebuild the temple. This is the, this is the narrative that was going on at this stage in the history. The, the people have returned, they're rebuilding the temple. And Zerubbabel is, is one of the leaders, uh, the king if you like, who is going to help rebuild that temple. And Joshua is spoken of the high priest. Now, here again is is a symbolic meaning that we can apply here to these two witnesses. Throughout history, they represent a king who does God's will and a priest who ministers before God on behalf of the people. Now, again, very helpfully, we have a diagram here. So look, the king is God's representative before man. He's meant to model God. He's the path through which God speaks to mankind. God speaks through men through the king. And the priest is man's representative to God. He's the one that speaks to God on behalf of mankind, brings their petitions and their prayers to God. And the religious health of the nation in the Old Testament, depended on a godly king and a righteous high priest. And when they were in place, the nation prospered. And when they were not, which was more often the case, the nation suffered. Yet Zechariah is told in this prophecy that a time is coming when all of that will change. And this is what's being reinforced by this picture in Revelation. This dual twofold witness of the king and the priest was vital in God's kingdom. But the promise to God, but the promise to Zechariah was this would not always be outworked through two literal men. We are now we are now described as kings and priests in the New Testament we that is all believers the church are an outworking of these two witnesses the king and a priest that model god's kingdom so here we are we we so we are this kind of twofold witness we have it there uh, this verse in revelation 5 and you have made them us a kingdom and priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth Now, so much more could be said on this subject. But these symbols, these lampstands, these olive trees, they orientated earlier readers to a deeper truth, to a timeless principle, to this message that the church would be this constant witness and a constant witness with power and authority that would boldly proclaim the gospel. And that's a message that every generation of the church must hear For it directs and it orientates our mission. And then fourthly, if you've got all of that, well done. I hope you're still with me. (laughs) Why do we need symbols? Let's just have literal stories. Fourthly, symbols protect. Symbols protect. It was dangerous to be a first century Christian. The dominant power of Rome not only oppressed Christians for their beliefs, but saw them as a threat to their world order. And as such, it was unwise to overtly write against the Roman Empire. Yet symbols held a meaning that was not so immediately obvious, and so allowed things to be communicated that otherwise could not be said. The Romans would regularly seize uh, documents written by Christian leaders to try them for treason. And writing in a symbolic way afforded a level of protection. You may have written uh, simple codes with your children or or when you were a child. uh, If you assign uh, numbers to letters, A is 1, B is 2, so on and so forth, uh, you can write a code in numbers, and it all seems very deep and very, uh, very, very sort of uh, James Bondish. Um, the Greek name, Neo or Nero Caesar, remember, Caesar was the, was the ruler who was persecuting the Christians at this time. Nero, when you write his name in Hebrew letters and assign them numbers, again, it adds up to 666. And then we have 666, this. this, this Weird symbol that seems to permeate so much of Revelation, and again, whole books and uh, multiple volumes of books have been written on what is six six six. But again, just keeping it as simple as we can for now. We'll get to that one, I'm sure, later on as well. I look at Danny as I say that one. Who's doing six six six? Yeah, we're, yeah, we'll worry about that next year sometime. Um, but but six six six. When you write some code, it stands for Nero, and so. Uh, again Christians were talking about this person who will oppress the church again the antichrist Uh, is it Nero is it somebody else it was a way of, of writing something that gave some degree of protection. Now, of course, some Bible uh, commentators or scholars will, will say that, no, that Nero is just a historic figure. The Antichrist is fully and totally something that comes in the future. Again, it's a you, you have to read Revelation yourself with all that we say here from the front and apply your own judgment, apply what God says to you through this. Uh, but I think there's an element there that says this was symbols being used to afford a degree of protection to the church. So I would suggest, as, as I start to sum up, that, that Revelation is clearly a symbolic letter. Now, it's not totally symbolic. There are little literal truths that we need to hang on to. I said right at the beginning, you know, Jesus is coming back. That's, that's not symbolic. That's a literal fact and a literal truth, and our very lives revolve around that fact there are literal truths in this book but there is a lot of symbolism but it wasn't written in that way to confuse us or misdirect us or even to protect some secret truth that should only be known to an elect few no those those symbols bring a richness and a power to this book we're reminded through those symbols of the timeless importance of this book to every generation of Christians. To every generation of Christians. Again, the one thing that I have picked up as I've been studying Revelation is just this, this, this throwaway phrase almost that I heard somewhere. that you know The guys that first read this book 2,000 years ago, you know, the one thing they didn't say was, I'm so glad that in 2,000 years somebody will make sense of this. We don't have to. It'll all come good in 2,000 years time. No, through every generation has read this book and seen meaning and taken strength and taken comfort from it. And so this book speaks powerfully to us today. To those who have already placed their trust in Jesus, it's a comfort and an assurance that history has a destination and a purpose. For those that have not yet come to Jesus, and this morning that might be you. You might be wondering, what on earth have I come to for this guy talking about this crazy stuff? But again, for you there's a message here. History has a destination and a purpose. The question is, how do we respond to that? And if you haven't yet come to that point where you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then can I encourage you to think so strongly about these truths maybe speak to somebody who brought you this morning someone you know is a christian if you're just beginning to join in with us again there's an opportunity to 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 just ask some more questions if you, if you want to ask me about revelation we haven't got A Q&A after this session because of the connect lunch but i'm here if you've got some questions then please come and come and ask me uh, if there's something you still want to to discuss but this is an important book that that gives us so much hope and promise john the very john that wrote revelation wrote in his first epistle that's a book that comes just a little bit before revelation john says i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god that you may know you have eternal life i think that's a wonderful summary of revelation do you ever go down the bookshop and buy books Do you know how it works when you go into a bookshop and you buy a book? And you think, is this a book that's worth reading? What do you actually do? Well, you pick it up and you turn to the back cover and you read what's called the blurb. Yeah? And it tells you a little bit about what the book's about. And it may have somebody else who says, ah, this was a great read sort of thing. And you think, oh gosh, that works for me. So if you've never read the Bible and you pick this up, probably the first question you're going to ask is, well, what's it all about? Oh, there's no blurb. How do I deal with this? Can I tell you where the blurb is? It's in 1 John 5.13. They didn't get around to putting it on the back cover back in those days. They stuck it kind of towards the end. But 1 John 5.13, there's the blurb for the Bible. These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you take anything away from Revelation, as we continue on through this series, take these truths away. These things are written that we might know that we have eternal life. I find that a wonderful summary of Revelation. In fact, this Bible as a whole, these things are written that we might know that we have eternal life. That's the strong anchor, the hope that holds us firm in the storms of life. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, I just thank you again for your word. Uh, I thank you for its complexity. I thank you that this is not meant to be a book that we just open up and read and understand and put down and say, hey, read that, done that, don't need to do that again. Lord, thank you. You're so much bigger than that. You're so much bigger than that, that we come to this book afresh. Every time we find new truths in there, we find new meanings, we find new things to explore. Lord, just give us a hunger to continue to dig into, to explore your word, to find you, Lord, to find you perhaps for the first time this morning, to find you as a true and trusty saviour, an anchor in life's storms. Amen. Amen.